uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, just trying to figure out what happened to my video settings. As you can see, we are zoomed out and you get a much larger picture of my messy office today. Um, normally I have it zoomed in a little bit tighter, but something happened and I lost my my video configuration, so I'm going to have to uh, get in there and figure that out um, before Monday's show. But for now, you get a treat. You get the wider view of my office um, behind me here. This is my, uh, my recliner. It's got a blanket on it because uh, I often sit there and read with my eyes closed. You can see Darby the Hamster's hamster habitat behind me. She has not been out and about since I got up this morning. But I assure you, she had lots of cuddles and seeds before bed last night. And uh, so, yeah, this is, a, this is a much more messy view of my office than I'm used to displaying. But there you go. You can see my Ronald Reagan bobblehead up on top of the, the shelf back there. And, and a, uh, a, a rag tucked up there that I, I just noticed. <laughs> it's... it's uh, hanging on a device up there. Um, so yeah, this is my messy office. Uh, you know, joystick for playing flying games, you know, all those good things. Um, so welcome to the Piney Woods. I am your Squirrel the Host, and this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. And obviously I want to talk about the problems with my camera. Um, yeah, anyway, just being silly. Uh, this, we webcast every day, Monday through Friday, 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And the podcast is then available for download wherever you get your audio podcasts. So I encourage you to find it, subscribe to it, download it, lead of it, or review. We appreciate that. And we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com and you're sure to find something that is doctrinally sound. They're all doctrinally sound. You're going to find something, though, that's worth listening to that fits your taste and your interest. There's all sorts of things. There's podcasts on doctrine and theology. There's podcasts on Christian living. There's podcasts on homeschooling. There's podcasts... Uh, by now, we probably have a cooking podcast. I don't know. I haven't checked. There are over 50 of them. New ones are being added all the time, and I gave up trying to keep up. Since I'm not on the board or anything like that, I don't have to keep up. But uh, there's good stuff to listen to, and quite a few of them are on my regular podcast rotation. So uh, check it out. You'll find something worth listening to. All right, today... We have, of course, prayers from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. We're going to have a reading from John MacArthur's daily reading from the life of Christ. As I mentioned yesterday, the devotional reading is now going to be a daily part of Squirrel Chatter. You know, last week, last year, last week, <laughs> last year um, had the whole thing of reading through the scriptures, and that took up the majority of our time. And I thought it was a great exercise and, and uh, everything, but it, it made planning simple because every day was the same. We were going to read through large chunks of, of the Bible to get through it in a year, and then we'd throw in short little things before and after. Um, this year, since we're not doing that, it's, uh, I, I'm having to put in much more work preparing for our study Bible level Bible study in Deuteronomy, which is Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and just falling into a routine has been more difficult. So this is um, constantly under adjustment, let's say. 
And so one of our adjustments is, and this was by request, I actually got several emails about this. I was reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ on Mondays and Fridays because the topics on Mondays and Fridays are not typically theological and scriptural. We were Mondays is Monday meandering. We're looking at current events and things going on in the world. And Fridays are Federalist Fridays where we're looking at our nation's founding documents. And so I was throwing in those daily devotionals just to give us a uh, bit of theological grounding to the day when we're not spending a great deal of time in the scripture. And so um, what I wanted to do was read from those. But a lot of people say, oh, that's great. Can we do that every day? Only takes a few minutes. So the reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ will now be a daily event on Squirrel Chatter. I won't talk about it like this every day, but we'll just get into it. And today is Friday, so it is Federalist Friday, excuse me. It's Federalist Friday, and so we are looking at the Federalist Papers, and today we're going to be in Federalist 15. And did I say today is February 3rd? It's Friday, February 3rd. So you know what day it is. This camera thing has got me really messed up. <laughs> it just, I'm not used to seeing that much of my office. I'd have cleaned some things. Um, it's, it's, it's messy. <laughs> you, you can't see the whole mess. If you, if you looked behind me on the floor, there's like four stacks of books in front of that bookcase because I don't have too many books. I just don't have enough bookcases. All right. Well, let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now we have John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. Jesus' Deity Central to the Gospel. A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17 the truth that Jesus Christ is God's perfect Son is a key feature of the gospel message. The author of the letter to the Hebrews makes this clear at the outset of his writing. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he, say, did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again... I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when again bring the firstborn into the and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And if of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. That's Hebrews 1, 1 through 8. The New Testament presents God more as the father of Jesus than as the father of believers. We cannot worship God unless we also worship Christ 
as one with him. Cross-reference there is John 5, 23. Ask yourself, are you as well pleased with the Son, your Savior, as the Father is? And are you willing to declare it as if booming from the heavens? Pray that God would renew your love for him today and fill you with boldness to pronounce your devotion at every opportunity. All right. Federalist number 15. The insufficiency of the present confederation to preserve the Union. For the Independent Journal, author Alexander Hamilton, to the people of the state of New York. In the course of the preceding papers, I have endeavored my fellow citizens to place before you in a clear and convincing light the importance of union to your political safety and happiness. I have unfolded to you a complication of dangers to which you would be exposed should you permit that sacred knot which binds the people of America together be severed or dissolved by ambition or by avarice, by jealousy or by misrepresentation. In the sequel of the inquiry through which I propose to accompany you, the truths intended to be inculcated will receive further confirmation from facts and arguments hitherto unnoticed. If the road over which you will still have to pass should in some places appear to you tedious or irksome, you will recollect that you are in quest of information on a subject the most momentous which can the most momentous which can engage the attention of a free people that the field through which you have to travel is in itself spacious and that the difficulties of the journey have been unnecessarily increased by the mazes with which sophistry has beset the way it will be my aim to remove the obstacles from your progress in as compendious a manner as it can be done without sacrificing utility to dispatch. I love old writing. People don't write like this today. Nothing written like this would ever be published today. Um, just the use of words, the vocabulary that he increases. And, and think about the fact that this was intended to be understood by casual readers of the newspaper. This was not written as an advanced academic journal, you know, for some advanced academic study, this is written for the newspaper to explain to the people what it meant. Now, understand, remember, America had a high literacy rate. Um, at the time, it was higher than just about every country in Europe. And the reason the literacy rate was so high goes back to early colonial days when so many of the colonies, not all of them, but so many of the colonies were religious in nature. So you had, and not specifically religious, but specifically Protestant. And in the Protestant faith, you have a strong, um, oh, what do we call it? A, a, a strong devotion to the word of God and so public education was enacted primarily to teach people how to read so that they could read the scriptures for themselves. 80% of education really is learning how to read and applying that knowledge to reading different things. Um, uh, uh, proper education. Sadly, our education system is no longer that. But I digress. Here Hamilton is, is saying that, yes, it's a difficult process to think through these things, and we're going to have to think through these things, and but understand that the journey is worth it. So he is going to try to lead us on the journey to the things that we must consider for the making of a union. He continues, In pursuance of the plan which I have laid down for the discussion of the subject, the point next in order to be examined is the insufficiency of the present confederation to the preservation of the Union. It may perhaps be asked what need there is of reasoning or proof to illustrate a position which is not either controverted or doubted, to which the understandings and feelings of all classes of men assent, and which is, 
and which in substance is admitted by the opponents as well as by the friends of the new constitution. So the, the idea that the Articles of Confederation were insufficient for the governing of the nation was well accepted. And so he says, why then talk about it? Why do we want to look at this deeper? He continues, It must in truth be acknowledged that however these may differ in other respects, they in general appear to harmonize in this sentiment, at least, that there are material imperfections in our national system and that something is necessary to be done to rescue us from independent, impending anarchy. So basically everybody's saying the government's broke. We need to do something to fix it. The argument is, what do we do? The facts that support this opinion are no longer objects of speculation. They have forced themselves upon the sensibility of the people at large and have at length extorted from those whose mistaken policy has had the principal share in precipitating the extremity at which we are arrived, a reluctant confession of the reality of those defects in the scheme of our federal government, which have been long pointed out and regretted by the intelligent friends of the Union. We may indeed with propriety be said to have reached almost the last stage of national humiliation. There is scarcely anything that can wound the pride or degrade the character of an independent nation which we do not experience. Are there engagements to the performance of which we are held by every tie respectable among men? These are the subjects of constant and unblushing violation. Do we owe debts to foreigners and to our own citizens contracted in a time of imminent peril for the preservation of our political existence? These remain without any proper or satisfactory provision for their discharge. Have we valuable territories and important posts in the possession of a foreign power which, by express stipulation, ought long since to have been surrendered? There was still some British-held American territory that the Treaty of Paris acknowledged as being American, and the, Brit, the British government had signed the Treaty of Paris. So they had acknowledged that, that those territories and the military fortresses specifically in, uh, it belonged to the United States, but they had not relinquished them. There were, you know, debts that had been incurred during the Revolutionary War where we had borrowed money um, to, to fight the war, and there was no provision to repay those debts. Um, and the, the government had no power to do it. There were national obligations that are legitimate operations between governments that the government uh, under the Articles of Confederation could not discharge. So that's why I said this was a national embarrassment. This is... <laughs> To put it bluntly, in modern terms, we were a third world country, unable to meet our obligations and unable to govern ourselves efficiently or rightly. You know, we look at nations in the world that just have no central government and have no law and order and, and anarchy reigns and that we don't look at them as you know, cohesive nations. We look at them in, in, with shameful disregard. We see them as an embarrassment. Well, that's the way people were looking at the United States because we had a government that was incapable of doing the things that a government ought to do. These are still retained to the prejudice of our interests. He's talking again about the political, the the possessions, territories, posts, and possession of a foreign power. These are still retained to the prejudice of our interests, not less than of our rights. Are we in a condition to resent or to repeal or repel the aggression? We have neither troops, nor treasury, nor government, I mean for the Union. This is basically our government is no government at all. Are we even in a condition to remonstrate with dignity. He says, we don't even have, we're not even in the right position to 
complain properly. That's harsh. <laughs> the just imputations on our own faith in respect to the same treaty ought first to be removed. He says, we can't whine about the fact that Britain hasn't relinquished those forts. There are things in that treaty we're not doing. Are we entitled by nature and compact to a free participation in the navigation of the Mississippi? Spain excludes us from it. Is public credit an indispensable resource in time of public danger? We seem to have abandoned its cause as desperate and irretrievable. Is commerce of importance to national wealth? Ours is at the lowest point of declension. Is respectability in the eyes of foreign powers a safeguard against foreign encroachments? The imbecility of our government even forbids them to treat with us. Our ambassadors abroad are the mere pageants of, of mimic sovereignty. Is a violent and unnatural decrease in the value of land a symptom of nas national distress? The price of improved land in most parts of the country is much lower than can be accounted for by the quantity of wasteland at market and can only be fully explained by that want of private and public confidence which are so alarmingly prevalent among all ranks and which have a direct tendency to depreciate property of every kind. Is private credit the friend and patron of industry? That most useful kind, which relates to borrowing and lending, is reduced within the narrowest limits, and this still more from an opinion of insecurity than from the scarcity of money. To shorten an enumeration of particulars, which can afford neither pleasure nor instruction, it may in general be demanded what indication is there of national disorder, poverty, and insignificance that could befall a community so peculiarly blessed with natural advantages as we, which does not form a part of the dark catalog of our public misfortunes. He said, by nature, the American territory was wealthy in natural resources, farmland, timber, you know, the things of, of material value at that time. Um, and that has only grown since then in our, our knowledge and understanding because we have, we have a great wealth in metals, we have oil, we have other national resources, natural resources that should make our country wealthy. I think about that. I'm getting ready to drive down to, to Shepherd's Conference and we're going to be driving through California. And every time I drive through California, it strikes me that this once was the wealthiest state in the United States. And it should be the wealthiest state in the United States. The farmland. I mean, it used to be a home of industry. You know, there were there were huge factories there in the '40s and '50s that that are gone, where they manufactured you know planes, tanks, and automobiles for the war effort, shipyards, m building and repairing mighty warships. You know, little of that is being done now. Um, the, the, the farmlands of California are rich. Northern California is a vacationer's paradise with the forests and the mountains and the hiking. And, and so, but we're looking at a state that is the deepest in debt in the United States. There is no way the state of California can, can repay their debt while they continue to spin themselves into oblivion. And because of that, they keep raising taxes, which is causing businesses to leave California, which reduces the taxpayer base that would be able to pay off the debt. Folks, we got to sp quit spending money on, on state and national level. The, the, the Democrat-run states and cities are so massively in debt, and the amount of money that our federal government is spending... I, it, it boggles the mind, and it is not sustainable. 
Um, it is indeed a national crisis that needs to be addressed. I wish, you know, <laughs> we, what if, you know, we need some Alexander Hamiltons around now who will, and we have them. We have them. They're guys, I, I have been, there, there are guys in government now saying this and, and trying to do something about it. The, the 20 that, the 20 uh, Republican congressmen who held out um, against the Kevin McCarthy speakership until they got certain guarantees, they really are trying to make America stronger and trying to, to cut our spending and get us back into a state of national solvency. Looking at, um, you know, this debt, debt ceiling crisis that's going on right now, where we have, um, you know, do we raise the debt ceiling to allow the federal government to borrow even more money? The Democrats are saying, yes, raise it without limit. That, that we can live on borrowed money for forever and achieve all of these idealistic utopian dreams of theirs forever. But it's not going to happen. It can't happen. Unrestrained spending is, is illogical and unsustainable. We can't keep borrowing and spending money we don't have, especially on projects that don't work. Okay, back to Hamilton. This is the melancholy situation to which we have been brought by those very maxims and councils which would now deter us from adopting the proposed Constitution and which, not content with having conducted us to the brink of a precipice, seem resolved to plunge us into the abyss that awaits us below. Here, my countrymen, impelled by every motive that ought to influence an enlightened people, let us make a firm stand for our safety, our tranquility, our dignity, our reputation. Let us at last break the fatal charm which has too long seduced us from the paths of felicity and prosperity. It is true, as has been before observed, that facts, too stubborn to be resisted, have produced a species of general assent to the abstract proposition that there exist material defects in our national system. But the usefulness of the concession on the part of the old adversaries of federal measures is destroyed by a strenuous opposition to a remedy upon which the only principles that can give it a chance of success. While they admit that the government of the United States is destitute of energy, they contend against conferring upon it those powers which are requisite to supply that energy. They seem still to aim at things repugnant and irreconcilable at an augmentation of federal authority without a diminution of state authority at sovereignty in the Union, and complete independence in the members. They still, in fine, seem to cherish with blind devotion the political monster of an imperium in imperio. This renders a full display of the principal defects of the Confederation necessary in order to show that the evils we experience do not proceed from minute or partial imperfections, but from fundamental errors in the structure of the building which cannot be amended otherwise than by an alteration in the first principles and main pillars of the fabric. So what he is saying here is there's not a few things about the Articles of Confederation and the government set up by the Article of Confederation that need to be tweaked. He's saying the problem lies in the entire structure of the government and it needs to be bulldozed and started over. And so that is the radical step that the new Constitution is demanding, a wholly new federal government from the ground up. He continues, The great and radical vice in the construction of the existing Confederation is in the principle of legislation for states or governments in their corporate or collective capacities and as contradistinguished from the individuals of which they consist. 
Though this principle does not run through all the powers delegated to the Union, yet it pervades and governs those on which the efficacy of the rest depends. Except as to the rule of appointment, the United States has an indefinite discretion to make requisition for men and money, but have no authority to raise either by regulations extending to the individual citizen of America. So, basically saying they, had, they could vote to raise money to pay off the debt. They could vote to raise military forces to defend the nation, but they couldn't enforce those votes. There was no mechanism of compulsion. Um, and compulsion is a legitimate part of government. The, the, the question comes down to what are what is the compulsion being used for? Is compulsion being used for a legitimate or an illegitimate purpose? But compulsion itself is not bad. You know, it, it, we see this in you know, the laws of every day where you know, we compel people by threat of punishment not to rob banks. <laughs> okay. And we enforce the rules against robbing banks with armed police officers and courts and prisons that will punish the people if they break the law. So we have compulsion to do what they ought, and that includes paying taxes. Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's there is a legitimate purpose for paying taxes. Uh, Paul talks about that in Romans 13. We, we pay our taxes to support the government, to do the legitimate work of the government. Now, we don't pay taxes to support the government to do illegitimate things that are not the true purpose of government, but that's a discussion for a different time. Where did we start? Okay, the consequence of this is that Though in theory their resolutions concerning these objects are laws, constitutionally binding on the members of the Union, yet in practice they are more recommendations which the states observe or disregard at their option. It is a singular instance of the capriciousness of the human mind that, after all the admonitions we have had from experience on this head, there should be found men who object to the new Constitution for deviating from a principle which has been found the bane of the old and which is in itself evidently incompatible with the idea of government. A principle, in short, which, if it is to be executed at all, must substitute the violent and sanguinary agency of the sword to the mild influence of the magistracy. And so basically saying, with, without a, a uh, ability to, to resort to violence... In, in the cause of good, we're left with only the powers of persuasion. And it is hard to persuade people to be altruistic because people are by nature selfish. And people will often refuse to give up some of their own comfort, some of their own wealth for the betterment of everybody. I'm not talking about some socialist program. I'm talking about chipping in to defend the nation. Um, and again, this was, you know, in other places he talked about the territoriality of the states where, you know, if I'm in Florida and I'm in facing an invasion from South America, the people of New York are under no compulsion to come help me under the Articles of Confederation. Now, under the Constitution, the federal government has the power to compel states far from the border to send troops to defend the border. And, and so this is one of the things that you know, it goes beyond persuasion. There is a, a power of compulsion there. 
Madison continues, there is, or Hamilton continues, there is nothing absurd or impractical in the idea of a league or alliance between independent nations for certain defined purposes precisely stated in a treaty regulating all the details of time, place, circumstance, and quantity, leaving nothing to future discretion, and depending for its execution on the good faith of the parties. Compacts of this kind exist among all civilized nations, subject to the usual vicissitudes of peace and war, of observance and non-observance, as the interests or passions of the contracting powers dictate. So he's saying here that, you know, military alliances exist between independent nations, but they spell out the details and the requirements that are needed. They're not ongoing governments that decide everyday things. The 13 colonies wanted to treat the national government as simply a treaty alliance between independent sovereign nations. That is not the same thing as being a single nation. So this was part of the problem. And so he says, yes, treaties exist between independent nations. They can be good treaties. They can serve a good purpose. But a federal government is not that. Continuing. In the early part of the present century, there was an epidemical rage in Europe for this species of compacts from which the politicians of the times fondly hoped to benefit, hoped for benefits which were never realized. With a view to establishing the equilibrium of power and the peace of that part of the world, all the resources of negotiation were exhausted, and triple and quadruple alliances were formed, but they were scarcely formed before they were broken, giving an indestructive but afflicting lesson to mankind how little dependence is to be placed on treaties which have no other sanction than the obligations of good faith, and which oppose general considerations of peace and justice to the impulse of any immediate interest or passion. Um, this is, of course, written in the, the 1780s, and just a little over 100 years later, in the early 1900s, you had these sort of treaty alliances in Europe collapse to form World War I, which at that time was the most bloody and long protracted war the world had ever seen be surpassed, surpassed by World War II, but uh, it was caused, the primary cause of World War I, I mean, we can say, yes, it was the, the, the greed of certain political bodies for the territory of others, yes, but what caused it to explode from a small regional conflict into this huge global conflict was treaty alliances. And the, the collapse of those treaty alliances into military action. So that, you know, a, a small local event triggered a continent-wide conflict. Um... And many fear that something like that is happening now in Ukraine. This small localized conflict because of treaty alliances and guarantees is threatening to become something much greater. Um, because as one side of the conflict sees the aid given by other nations to the other side of the conflict how long before they recognize that the nations giving aid are every bit as involved in the war as the actual country they're fighting and begin to express that militarily. You know, the foreign entanglements, I, I believe our first president <laughs> warned us against foreign entanglements. There was a reason for that.
If the particular states in this country are disposed to stand in a similar relation to each other and to drop the project of a general discretionary superintendence, the scheme would indeed be pernicious and would entail upon us all the mischiefs which have been enumerated under the first head. But it would have the merit of being at least consistent and practicable, abandoning all views toward a Confederate government. This would bring us to a simple alliance, offensive and defensive, and would place us in a situation to be alternate friends and enemies of each other, as our mutual jealousies and rivalships, nourished by the intrigues of foreign nations, should prescribe to us. So he's pointing back to earlier things where he talked about the problems of independent nations warring with each other um, and shifting alliances and stuff and, and pointed to the history of Europe and said, if we want to do that, fine, but understand that if we do that, you know, someday, you know, there will be a war between Georgia and Florida over Pensacola or whatever. You know, there's going to be some some territorial disputes. There's going to be some trade disputes that will lead to open conflict. And, you know, there will alternately be friends and enemies as mutual jealousies and rivalships nourished by the intrigues of foreign nations should prescribe us. But if we are willing to be placed in this perilous situation, if we still will adhere, if we are unwilling to be placed in this perilous situation, if we still will adhere to the design of a national government or, which is the same thing, of a superintending power under the direction of a common council, we must resolve to incorporate into our plan those ingredients which may be considered as forming the characteristic difference between a league and a government. We must extend to the authority of the union to the per we must extend the authority of the union to the persons of the citizens, the only proper objects of government. Government implies the power of making laws. It is essential to the idea of a law that it be attended with a sanction or, in other words, a penalty or punishment for disobedience. If there be no penalty annexed to disobedience, the resolutions or commands which pretend to be laws will, in fact, amount to nothing more than advice or recommendation. This penalty, whatever it may be, can only be inflicted on, in two ways, by the agency of the courts and ministers of justice, or by military force, by the coercion of the magistracy or by the coercion of arms. The first kind can evidently apply only to men. The last kind must of necessity be employed against political bodies, communities, or states. It is evident that there is no process of a court by which the observance of the laws can, in the last resort, be enforced. Sentences may be denounced against them for violations of their duty, but those sentences can only be carried into execution by the sword. In an association where the general authority is confined to the collective bodies of the communities that compose it, every breach of the law must involve a state of war, and military execution must become the only instrument of civil obedience. Such a state of things can certainly not deserve the name of government, nor would any prudent man choose to commit his happiness to it. So laws are enforced against individuals, Treaty violations are enforced against nations. And so, but laws must be enforced. The, the, there must be a coercion that you either submit to the judgment of the court or you are forced to submit by force of arms, whether it's, you know, individual law enforcement personnel or whether it's, you know, a military invasion. There was a time when we were told that breaches by the states of the regulations of the federal authority were not to be expected, that a sense of common interest would preside over the conduct of the respective members and would beget a full compliance with all the constitutional requisitions of the Union. This language at the present day would appear as wild as as great part of what we now hear from the same quarter will be thought when we shall have received further lessons from that best oracle of wisdom, experience. He's saying that in the beginning, 
there were idealists who had an idealized view of mankind, that mankind would rationally choose to do that which was rational and in the best interest of all. That's not humanity, folks. Like I said, we're, we're selfish people, often led by our own passions and desires against even our own self-interest. Yet, here we are. And, and he is saying that, you know, that experience has shown that this was a wild utopian fantasy. Beware of utopianism. Utopianism has always been a enemy of truth. Because the utopian lives in the world he wants to live in, not the world that is. There are misguided ideas of what the world is like that drive their decision-making. Well, since those decisions are made about a world that does not exist, those decisions are often very wrong for the world that does exist. Beware of utopianism. This language at the present day would appear as wild as a great part of what we now hear from the same quarter will be thought when we shall have received further lessons from the best oracle of wisdom experience. It at all times betrayed an ignorance of the true springs by which human conduct is actuated and belied the original inducement to the establishment of civil power. Why has government been instituted at all? Because the passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason and justice without constraint. Has it been found that bodies of men act with more rectitude or greater disinterestedness than individuals? The contrary of this has been inferred by all accurate observers of the conduct of mankind. And the inference is founded upon obvious reasons. Regard to reputation has a less active influence when the infamy of a bad action is to be divided among a number than when it is to be fall on a single fall singly upon one. Basically, saying there's while there's strength in numbers, there's also less accountability in numbers, and we see this in in mob action. Yeah. An individual would never walk out alone into a street and throw a Molotov cocktail at a police car. You just wouldn't do it. But a mob will do it all the time. Because an individual as part of a mob feels safer in his violation of community standards and norms. So a single individual would, would be reluctant because they would be caught, they would be thought bad of, but when there's a mob, it's a different thing entirely. And so the infamy of bad action is to be divided among a number is, is not a deterrent as it would be if it was on a single person. A spirit of faction, which is apt to mingle its poison in the deliberations of all bodies of men, will often hurry the persons of whom they are composed into improprieties and excesses for which they would blush in a private capacity. Think about politicians. Think about just some of the speeches I've watched in the last couple of weeks where politicians have stood up, and I'm not going to name any names or any specific instances, but I'm thinking about a few, where politicians have stood up and boldly and flat-outly lied, or who have advocated for immoral practices, yet they do it boldly, because it's part of the faction that they are a part of. Um, and it, it is a problem. 
He says, in addition to all this, there is in the nature of sovereign power an impatience of control that disposes those who are invested with the exercise of it to look with an evil eye upon all external attempts to constrain or direct its operations. From this spirit it happens that in every political association which is formed upon the principle of uniting in a common interest a number of lesser sovereignties, there will be found a kind of eccentric tendency in the subordinate or inferior orbs by the operation of which there will be a perpetual effort in each to fly off from the common center. This tendency is not difficult to be accounted for. It has its origin in the love of power. Power controlled or abridged is almost always the rival and enemy of that power by which it is controlled or abridged. This simple proposition will teach us how little reason there is to expect that the persons entrusted with the administration of the affairs of the particular members of a confederacy will at all times be ready with perfect good humor and an unbiased regard to the public wheel to execute the resolutions or decrees of the general authority. The reverse of this results from the constitution of human nature. So basically saying that those in power have a tendency and a desire to accumulate more power and therefore power must be kept in check and that there are those who will unquestionably, unquestionably follow the dictates of those in power unless they are kept in check. And so, you know, this is why government needs checks and balances to limit the power and authority of those who are in power and authority to the things which are legitimate uses of that power of authority, legitimate by the means of which that was why they were given that power and authority. You were given your power and authority to take care of this. You were not given your power and authority to deal with any of this stuff. Leave that stuff alone. You stay on track. And that needs to be guarded against because everybody wants to expand their power and authority. Look at federal agencies. Very few of the federal agencies in existence are still dedicated to the purpose for which they were created. They have all expanded way beyond that purpose. One of the reasons why many of us are saying that many of these federal agencies need to abol be abolished. They've grown way beyond their intended functionality. I just saw a newspaper article this morning that said that the FBI is planning on building a new headquarters that will be larger than the Pentagon. The Pentagon is the headquarters of our combined armed forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And the FBI wants to be more powerful than the combined forces of our military. What do they need a headquarters of that size to be? You go back to the founding. You need to understand the vast majority of law enforcement was local. And it still should be. We don't need huge federal law enforcement agencies. There's no... Laws need to be enforced at the local level. One of the founding principles is that the majority of government action needs to take place as close to the people being governed as possible. So there should be more governing at the state and local level than at the federal level. There should be more governing at the local and municipal level than at the state level. Because the day-to-day the -day governing decisions need to be made at the lowest possible level. That was a founding principle. And, and that has been, you know, now everybody looks to Washington to take care of everything. And that's a problem. Hamilton continues, if therefore 
the measures of the Confederacy cannot be executed without the intervention of the particular administrations, there will be little prospect of their being executed at all. The rulers of the respective members, whether they have a constitutional right to do it or not, will undertake to judge the propriety of the measures themselves. They will consider the conformity of the thing proposed or required to their immediate interests or aims, the momentary conveniences or inconveniences that would attend its adoption. All this will be done, and in a spirit of interested and suspicious scrutiny, without that knowledge of national circumstances and reasons of state, which is essential to a right judgment, and with that strong predilection in favor of local objects, which can hardly fail to mislead the decision. The same process must be repeated in every member of which the body is constituted, and the execution of the plans framed by the Council of the Whole will always fluctuate on the discretion of the ill-informed and prejudiced opinion of every part. Those who have been conversant in the proceedings of popular assemblies, who have seen how difficult it often is, where there is no exterior pressure of circumstances to bring them to harmonious resolutions on important points, will readily conceive how impossible it must be to induce a number of such assemblies deliberating at a great distance from each other at different times and under different impressions long to cooperate in the same views and pursuits. In our case, the concurrence of 13 district sovereign wills is requisite under the Confederation to the complete execution of every important measure that proceeds from the Union. It has happened as, we, as was to have been foreseen. The measures of the Union have not been executed. The delinquencies of the states have, step by step, matured themselves to an extreme which has at length arrested all the wheels of the national government and brought them to an awful stand. Congress at this time scarcely possesses the means of keeping up the forms of administration till the states can have time to agree upon a more substantial substitute for the present shadow of a federal government. Things did not come to this desperate extremity at once. The causes which have been specified produced at first only unequal and disproportionate degrees of compliance with the requisitions of the Union. The greater deficiencies of some states furnished the pretext of example and the temptation of interest to the complying or to the least delinquent states. Why should we do more in proportion than those who are embarked with us in the same political voyage? Why should we consent to bear more than our proper share of the common burden? These were suggestions which human selfishness could not withstand, and which even speculative men, who look forward to remote consequences, could not, without hesitation, combat. Each state, yielding to the persuasive voice of immediate interests or convenience, has successfully withdrawn its support till the frail and tottering edifice seems ready to fall upon our heads and to crush us beneath its ruins. Publius. I find it interesting, as he describes the United States under the Articles of Confederation, all I can think about is the United Nations. A meeting of delegates of independent and desperate sovereignties. Desperate, I mean, different. Very different, with different aims, different goals, different desires, different philosophies, different beliefs. And they all gather in New York and they argue and debate. But the decisions made by the United Nations are not binding on anybody. Now, that's fine. I don't like the United Nations. I don't want the decisions of the United Nations to be binding on anybody. But that was the function of Congress in the Articles of Confederation. Delegates from each of the state would meet together. And they would decide things, but they had no way of enforcing it. And the interests of the independent states would then negate anything that the federal government decided. And anything that the National Congress decided had to then be debated and ratified by the state legislatures of each of the 13 colonies, or 13 states. And that just didn't happen. It started at the beginning, it happened more often than not. 
But as time had gone by, and we're only talking a decade, folks, you know, you're looking, the Articles of Confederation were, were instituted during the Revolutionary War, which started in 1776. It's 1787 when the Constitutional Convention met, barely 10 years later, to, to debate the fact that the Articles of Confederation weren't working and to come up with a new form of government. So if you think about that, it's only been 10 years, and it had fallen apart to that extent. The Articles of Confederation were a failure and needed to be replaced. But many of the same philosophies that drove the creation of the Articles of Confederation were driving the resistance to the new Constitution. And so what Hamilton is saying here is it's not just a matter of tweaking what we already have. This is what we have, and this is why it doesn't work, and this is why we're having all of these issues. And so we need to bulldoze it and start over. All right. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the Collect for Grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, Almighty and Everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks. It's Friday. That means Sunday's coming. I expect you to be in church, or uh, I won't be in church this Sunday. I will be at the youth retreat at Camp Utmost, and I will be at a worship service at camp, but I will not be at my local church. But if at all possible, you should be. I'm leaving this afternoon to go up to Camp Utmost. I'm wearing my Camp Utmost shirt. I'm going up to Camp Utmost for the, it's a combined junior high and high school retreat. Um, there are three girls cabins, three boy cabins. And we'll see how many we have there. It won't be near as big a crowd as we have for, for high school week in the summer where all the cabins were full <laughs> and uh, full to overflowing. We did not have an empty bunk in our cabin, which is a good thing. I don't know how many kids we got. I, I, I understood that they were full on girls. Last I saw, they were still, still had room for a few boys. I don't know if those spots have been taken. I will find out this afternoon when I arrive at Camp Utmost. But I got home last night. I was Yesterday I was driving uh, the junior high girls basketball team. Um, both A and B squads won. It was the happy bus coming home, which I always appreciate. And uh, so we were coming home, and uh, I get home, and I find an email from the camp director's wife asking if I would lead the morning devotionals for the men. So I'm going to have a Saturday and Sunday devotional to uh, start each day that uh, I, I need to prepare this morning. <laughs> Because I just found out last night I was doing this. Not a problem. Got ideas. Think I know what I'm going to do. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll deal with that as the time comes. Um, but, you know, so pray for me as I prepare for these two devotionals that are going to span the age of junior high to high school. You know, basically junior high to adult. Um, so that's going to be an interesting 
I don't want to make it too simple, but I don't want to make it too complex. So uh, I'm going to be drawing up some notes for that this morning. And uh, got to pack, got to do all that stuff. Um, plan on leaving here early afternoon, stopping in Missoula, having Chick-fil-A for lunch because I'm going through Missoula and it's not Sunday. <laughs> so I'm going to stop and have Chick-fil-A then get up to camp mid to late afternoon where I can settle in and everything before the campers begin to arrive at 5.30. So we get together at 5.30, we have dinner and an evening program, then we have all day tomorrow with uh, both uh, Bible study and stuff like that, but also sledding, snowmobiling, winter activities outside, which really doesn't fill me with joy, but be that as it may. And then evening programs inside, we'll have fire, you know, the fireplace will be going. Um, if the weather's nice, we might fire up the fire pit outside. I don't know. Uh, we use that big fire pit outside during the summer for church. I don't know what we're going to be doing, or for, for camp. I don't know what we're going to be doing in the winter. The only the only winter events I have ever been to Camp Upmost have been men's retreats, which are adult men where we're inside all the time, except for, you know, some time spent at the shooting range and such. But uh, those have been the only winter events that I've been at camp for. So I'm, I'm interested to, uh, to, to see what all we do. Uh, I'm not all that interested in outdoor activities, and I have been assured that there are younger counselors who can go play outside, and I will not have to, uh, <clears throat> won't have to do what I did during high school camp last year. I, I didn't have to do it then, as I found out, but I uh, tried to be a part of every, uh, every day and doing outside activities which was fine up until slip and slide kickball because while playing slip and slide kickball I slipped and I slide and I came down on my back really hard and I was not in uh, not I was in discomfort the rest of the week <laughs> We'll just put it that way. So I'm going to be much more judicious and much more um, oh, thoughtful and much more attentive to the fact that I am no longer in even my 20s or 30s. <laughs> I'm not even in my 40s. I'm rapidly approaching 60, and I don't need to be being silly. So... I can hang with the kids and have fun with the kids, but I'm not going to be doing any uh, sledding or anything like that because I learned my lesson with slip and slide kickball last summer. All right, folks, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord, and we'll see you again here on Monday for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Go to church on Sunday. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.